Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. Today, I will be talking once again to Vanessa Shakib of the California law firm Advancing Law for Animals. Vanessa is representing E.L., who, though you probably don't know her by name, you have definitely already heard about. She is the young girl whose beloved goat, Cedar, who started out as a 4-H project, was brutally killed against E.L.'s wishes in what is perhaps the most unbelievable outrageous behavior by law enforcement regarding an animal that we have seen in a long while. And that, I have to say, is saying something. Of course, this case is, is in very early stages. It's just been in the news. It really, A lot of this just happened. I really wanted to touch base with Vanessa to get up to speed on what really happened here and what we need to be aware of and keeping an eye on what could be a really, really important, potentially groundbreaking case. Before we get to the interview, I'll just take a moment to quickly ask for your support for Our Hen House, which is, of course, the not-for-profit that produces this podcast, along with the Our Hen House podcast. And if you can, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate, and you can join our flock for $100 a year or $10 a month, or you can make whatever donation you can afford and are comfortable with. We appreciate every single one. And if you're not already a listener of Our Hen House, our other podcast, here's a, an idea of what you've been missing. I interviewed Alexandra Paul and Alicia Santurio about their recent acquittal of criminal charges at the Foster Farms chicken rescue case. Wow. Jasmine interviewed Aaron Rimler-Cohen of Farm Sanctuary about Farm Sanctuary's work to shift food policy at the federal level. And... Actually, elsewhere, not just at the federal level. And I interviewed Kate Nash, who's the star of the vegan forward comedy Coffee Wars. All great interviews. Please don't miss them. So now let's get to the interview. Vanessa Shakib is an expert in animal law, government accountability, and illegal business practices, and is the co founder and co director of Advancing Law for Animals, a nonprofit law firm dedicated to developing impact litigation to further the interests of animals exploited in research and industrial food production. Vanessa has successfully challenged cruel and illegally promulgated regulations at the federal level, as well as a lack of animal welfare enforcement at the local levels. She's also an adjunct associate professor of law at Southwestern Law School, where she was recently named adjunct professor of the year. She will be joining me right after this. We are so pleased to share with you what is happening at Vermont Law and Graduate School's Animal Law Program. Delcy Winders, who of course has been on the podcast several times, is the director of the new Animal Law and Policy Institute there. And there are a number of exciting new developments and degree programs that are open to students and professionals. The school has a number of full-time faculty teaching animal law and policy courses and over a dozen specialized classes residentially, online, and over the summer term including animal ethics, the science of animal law, undercover investigations of animal operations, and the Farmed Animal Advocacy Clinic. They are reviving animal rights jurisprudence and developing new courses such as international animal law and animal law in practice. Residential and online hybrid law students can concentrate in animal law, and this fall, Vermont Law and Graduate School will welcome its first class for the Masters in Animal Protection Policy where students can learn practical skills, how to strategically advance animal protections, and how to launch a career in animal advocacy. You may visit their website at vermontlaw.edu slash animal law to learn about the degree programs, scholarships, events, and summer courses, which are open to students at other schools or anyone who would like to audit a course to learn how to be an effective animal advocate while earning CLE credit. 
For anyone interested in pursuing a career path helping animals, feel free to reach out to Delcy Winders or Laura Ireland at Vermont Law and Graduate School to learn more. They would love to talk to you and offer their support. And they let us know there's even more programming on the horizon, so look forward to hearing more news soon. Brooks Animal Law Digest is a premier online free publication dedicated to offering in-depth and up-to-date coverage on today's most important animal law and policy issues. The United States Digest is published weekly as a collaborative effort with the Brooks McCormick Jr. Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard Law School. The Canadian Digest is published twice monthly with the support of the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. This digest is a resource for anyone interested in learning more about the animal law field. Subscribing is like having a full-time lawyer researching and reporting to you on current legal developments related to animal protection. Features include updates by category and key terms, as well as links to background materials that will orient the reader into that specific issue. You can subscribe to the U.S. and Canadian Brooks Animal Law Digests at thebrooksinstitute.org. Welcome back to the Animal Law Podcast, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my God, I'm thrilled to have you. I'm so glad we got a hold of you. I'm sure that your life is crazy because this case, I don't think there's anyone who hasn't heard about this case. And even though that's, that is the situation, I don't think that means we're all familiar with the details of what happened here. I know when I was reading uh, your complaint as I went as I was preparing for this, I was surprised by a lot of the details. Let's start with with the facts. And, you know, I think we're good. It's very early days in this case, so not a lot has developed legally, but I definitely want to get into what your legal claims are. But I, what I really want to start with is is really getting into the facts and exactly what happened here. So can you just tell us the story of who Cedar was and what happened to him and his family? Absolutely. As you mentioned, there's been national and international interest in this case. And the headlines have been quick and brief. And so there's a lot more happening here once we dig in. Uh, My clients are a little girl whose name is kept confidential because she is a minor and for privacy reasons, as well as her mother. Um, My minor client I refer to as EL. EL at the time was a nine-year-old girl who... Uh, purchased a goat named Cedar, raised him, fell in love with him. We are a country of pet lovers. We have dogs and cats at home. We all know how we can fall in love with our furry family members. And EL certainly fell in love with Cedar. And because she had enrolled in a 4-H program, when it came time for that terminal auction, she really understood what was going to happen to her beloved family member. And that's when the story changes. Let me ask you a few general questions, and then we'll get into exactly what happened at that fair. What is Shasta County, California like? Can you set the scene for us a little bit of this area? From what I understand, it's a small community. And so we can all appreciate in a small community how challenging it is to stand up in the face of unfairness and illegality. So I really want to recognize the bravery of my clients here for standing up for their rights in this small community on an issue that has really turned out to be a live wire. And and is 4-H a big deal there? It's a fairly rural place, right? 
My understanding is yes, and that 4-H is serves a role in this particular community. Uh, the facts in this case center around a community barbecue. And so, as I understand, 4-H has a role in this particular community. Now, there was an agreement, which which I assume is pretty standard. When when she enrolled in 4-H and she agreed to raise this uh Raised this little. I, I, he must have been very small when when he came into the family, but without getting into whether the agreement was enforceable and all the legal questions, can you just give us an idea of what, according to the agreement, the fair would have been entitled to from from El regarding their 4-H obligations? Yeah. So the rules here are very interesting and favor my clients, the the rules for the fair state that the exhibitor must be the legal owner of the animal. So here the exhibitor is EL, my minor client who owned Cedar. The rules further state that the exhibitor maintains ownership of the animal throughout the event. So prior to the event, EL owned Cedar and during the event, EL owned Cedar. And here we all know um, as lawyers, as law students, or as people interested in legal issues, when we have a contract and there is a breach of that contract, or in this case, a minor exercised her statutory right and disaffirmed the contract, the remedy is civil. This is a civil contractual dispute. It is a very simple open and shut property dispute. This is not a criminal issue. It does not warrant a criminal investigation of any kind. The fact that we have county fair officials and the fact that we have sheriff's deputies transforming this very simple dispute into a criminal circus is abhorrent and it is lawless. And does explain why this has attracted so much attention. But getting back to that agreement, because I'm interested in what 4-H kids do think they're agreeing to, even if these agreements are not legally enforceable, probably most of them think it is. Is that what these kids are expected to agree to, that their animals will be sold to slaughter? Well, look, we can't and I can't certainly comment on what a child believes she is agreeing to. Right. I only only am curious to say what they're claiming, uh, you know, not whether the agreement was enforceable, because I think you have a very strong argument that it wasn't. I imagine a lot of them think the agreement is enforceable, even though it isn't. What kind of obligations do they think they're being stuck with? Well, I'll tell you from the defendant's perspective, uh, the county fair defendants in particular, from their perspective, participants have agreed to a terminal slaughter of the animal. And so that's their perspective. But the bottom line is my clients retained ownership of Cedar and my minor client in particular exercised her statutory right in California. California law recognizes the rights of minors to disaffirm contracts. But even regardless, let's talk big picture. Let's zoom out. When there is a contractual dispute, it is a civil issue, plain and simple. Right. Of course. Of course. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make, which, you know, maybe I'm having a little trouble making it without making implications that this agreement was enforceable, which I'm certainly not saying it is. It, it's just a shame that these kids think they might be entering into an enforceable agreement. And unlike EL, just, you know, she's that rare one who stood up and said, and she had a mother who was supporting her who stood up and said, wait a second, hold on. 
you know, I never meant to agree to this. If I did agree to it, you know, I should, like I'm nine, <laughs> like something has to be done here. So, so I just think it's, you know, 4-H kind of like gets these kids to sign away rights that they're not allowed to have them sign away. And I, I just, that's the kind of the point I wanted to make that, you know, good for EL that she, and, and for her mother that they stood up and said, all right, this, whatever this agreement was that you think we entered into, we, there's, there's plenty of loss here saying that we didn't. And as you say, that, and that makes it a civil case. So we're going to get into all of those details. I'm just, I, I just wanted to make that point for in behalf of all of the kids who just think they have to, who just think that they have no choice and good for EL for, you know, standing up and saying, no, we do have, we do have a choice here. All right. So like, let's, let's talk a little bit more specifically about what happened at the fair. Cause I'm not sure of, I, I understand that timeline. She brought Cedar to the fair. It was it at the fair that this whole crisis happened and you tell the story of, of what happened. You know, my minor client's feelings were developing. She fell in love with Cedar as she raised him, but this of all course. comes to a head at the fair when she really understands what's going to happen. Cedar uh, was purchased by a bidder. And in this case, that bidder was an elected official and um, EL's mom, Mrs. Long, reached out to State Senator Brian Dolly's office. And as we understand the situation, his representative indicated he was absolutely fine with Cedar's life being spared. And so here, legally speaking, there is no problem with a minor disaffirming her contract. The factually speaking, there's no problem because the individual who purchased Cedar had no issue with Cedar returning home to his family. Um, but where the story really goes sideways is with these county officials as well as the deputies. And it's very important for me to highlight the integrity of my clients. Mrs. Long offered to pay any and all monetary damages associated with taking Cedar home. And that is very important here because my clients had yeah. incredible integrity yeah. in this matter. And what we see is government officials acting together, coordinating improperly to essentially terrorize this little girl and violate her legal rights. You know, I'm not even sure that they, like in order to be legally protected, they had to make that offer, but they did. I mean, they acted with integrity. They said, and I was really surprised because, you know, I read some news stories and I thought this state senator, I was ready to blame him. But, you know, from apparently from what you're saying, he was like, oh, you know, okay, never mind. That's fine. Uh, so, yeah, the blame is really getting centered here. Their behavior is just so inexplicable. So she she told the senator who had thought he had purchased this this coat and he apparently his office said, yeah, fine. What did she tell the fair and or anybody else? I'm not sure anybody else was concerned with the matter once the senator had made the bid and it was accepted. But how did it happen that that they the fair was informed and then the sheriff's office was informed that they didn't want to sell their goat? Once my clients removed Cedar from the fairgrounds, the story really takes a turn. The county fair officials contacted my client. There was dialogue that went back and forth, both written and oral. And what we see here is highly inappropriate. We have county fair officials threatening Mrs. Long with a felony, threatening her with 
felony theft of cedar. This is absolutely outrageous. And I can't imagine how terrified I would be if a government official was threatening me with a felony. You know, this this is very scary stuff here. And so we see this insistence and these threats coming from these county officials. And uh, weeks later, the sheriff's deputies get involved. The exact details around all of this will be unearthed in the discovery process. Yeah, of course, you wouldn't know that because that's what they were doing. Yeah, at this juncture. This ends with the deputies obtaining a warrant, which this right here is highly problematic. We are talking about textbook government gone rogue. There is no basis to obtain a criminal warrant in a civil matter. And I want to be very clear about that. But let's for a moment humor this criminal circus. Even if this warrant was valid, which we argue it was not, and even if the seizure of Cedar was valid, which we argue it was not, if we humor this whole series of events, what would have been proper following the seizure of Cedar would be for the deputies to hold him because they knew that there was a property dispute. My clients have due process rights. So the proper response would have been to hold Cedar until this issue was adjudicated because ownership and due process is an issue for the courts. It is not an issue for the cops. Obviously, you can't just destroy property that you have seized. The property has to be preserved. So, all right, so they got this warrant to seize Cedar. And tell us about the adventure that they took to find him. Yeah, so let's for a moment consider the fact that this warrant was obtained at nighttime. It's dated around 6.30 p.m. And so we know that these sheriff's deputies in total traveled approximately 500 miles. So this is occurring under the cover of darkness. This goes down like a drug bust. The warrant is curious. It is outrageous. It is lawless. It has authorizations for these deputies to breach entryways to obtain cedar. To say that this is a gross miscarriage of justice and a failure of priorities is an understatement. It was it 500 miles one way? We believe in totality, it's the this taxpayer joyride was approximately 500 miles. Okay, so two, it's still a really long way. I mean, let's think about it. That's that's like a five-hour, half 250 miles is a five-hour drive. It, it, it's kind of unbelievable. Well, it's totally unbelievable, but, you know, it happened. And I want to add, the Sacramento Bee did a tremendous job reporting on this, and the Sacramento Bee did a calculation. Of course, the fair was only entitled to a small percentage of Cedar's purchase price at the auction, something like 7%, which meant that they would have been entitled to somewhere around $60. And so the Sacramento Bee calculated the gas for this journey to illegally see Cedar and finds, of course, that the gas alone is in excess of the profit that the fair would have been entitled to. Yeah. And I'm really glad you went back to that fact because we hadn't mentioned that 
the child was was entitled to receive the vast majority of the of the money. The prices for the for these animals is very very inflated because people do it as sort of what they believe is some kind of helping the the kids. Uh, so they they pay a high premium for the and all, almost all of that money would have been due to. It's not like they were depriving the county or the fair of a lot of money. The fair was only entitled to a very small percentage of that. So clearly, we're not talking about money here. Doesn't have anything to do with money. We're not. This was never about money. It has never been about money. That's why in our lawsuit, among the many claims we have, we have a claim for First Amendment viewpoint discrimination. I love that claim, and I do really want to get into it. You know, I just really want to go through these facts carefully because... When was when was Cedar killed? The exact details on how he was killed are unknown, but this is what we know. We know that he was seized at nighttime, and we believe that a community barbecue took place the next day. We believe oh, the lawlessness and the urgency around this was in connection with that imminent community barbecue. We are still investigating and that process is still underway. Oh my God. Like uh, you're giving me the chills. So after Cedar was killed and perhaps after his body was eaten uh, at this barbecue, but you don't really know about that for sure. That's a new fact for me. I just really, uh, I, I feel slightly ill. What happened? Uh, there was an outcry and there's a lot of information in in the papers about responses on social media, which had a lot to do with the way that this was responded to. Can you just talk about that? Or did that happen before the goat was seized? Government officials became aware of social media posts about Cedar prior to his illegal seizure. And so this is relevant to our claim of First Amendment viewpoint discrimination and retaliation. And so we think that was one of their motivations in this horrific uh, behavior. Yes. And in fact, one of the defendants specifically cites the discussion on the internet in the public forum in correspondence with my client. And so we know that these defendants were inflamed in light of my client's view that Cedar was a member of their family and they were inflamed by the free expression of ideas in the public square. So where was Cedar? I, obviously, he was no longer in Shasta County, at, at, I assume no longer at the home of E.L. and her mother. When they left the fair, did they take him home and then, and then take him somewhere else for safeguarding? Because this issue had hit such a hot uh, button, uh, my clients did put Cedar in a safe place where they felt that he could enjoy himself and be safeguarded while this dispute was resolved in the community. I, I don't know where they lived. Did they live in a place where they, where they were planning to keep him at home or were they planning to place him in a place where he would be safe more permanently or had they just not decided? At this time, I'm not sure of those specific facts. Um, but what I do know and what's important here is that Cedar belonged to the little girl and she did not want him slaughtered. And this whole experience from A to Z was completely lawless and in violation of a laundry list of her legal rights. So I can imagine that after this kind of experience, a lot of people would be traumatized. 
But really, by characterizing this as a criminal action, I assume that that was part of what motivated El's mother and El to seek counsel. That they must have been very frightened. Is that how you ended up getting involved? Well, I won't get into the details of conversations uh, around these events with my clients, but suffice it to say, it is absolutely terrifying when you are threatened with a felony by a government official, especially when that criminal threat is wholly inappropriate. The recurring theme throughout this is not just how horribly and cruelly they acted, but how stupidly. I was going to say foolishly, but stupid is really a, a better word for it. They, uh, I don't see what choice El and her mother had other than to to do something about this because they were being threatened with really horrible repercussions. All right, so you made the decision. At some point, you were engaged. You made the decision to bring an action. Can you tell us why you're in federal court? And I assume that has a little bit to do with Section 1983. And can you tell us a little bit about that statute? We are in federal court because we're asserting a laundry list of constitutional violations from the First Amendment to the Fourth Amendment to the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, in addition to claims of intentional infliction of emotional distress, conversion, as well as some others. And so 1983 is the federal statute that allows us to assert these causes of action against these state and local actors. And who are the defendants? The defendants in this case are a series of sheriff's deputies involved as well as county fair officials. When you talk about the fair, just to be clear, since 1983 does involve, generally involve public officials who are acting under color of state law, which would be obvious with sheriff's deputies, but the, the fair is a government entity, correct? Correct. It's the county fair. And you you make reference throughout your complaint to possible additional defendants. Is that just belt and suspenders or do you anticipate that others will be involved here? Well, we can't know for certain. This story reeks of cronyism and corruption. There are serious questions how county fair officials were able to enlist sheriff's deputies to participate in the improper transformation of a purely civil dispute into a criminal circus. And once we get these details uh, from the discovery process, it will not be surprising if we come to learn of more individuals appropriate to be named as defendants. Yeah, it does seem likely. All right, you mentioned your list of causes of action, I think unreasonable search and seizure, which you can bring, an individual can bring that claim pursuant to 42 U.S.C. 1983. So that that seems obvious. What about the denial of due process? What what process are you suggesting was due here that she was deprived of or that either of them was deprived of? My clients had a right to be seen and heard in court for the proper adjudication of this dispute. Here we have sheriffs who improperly acted as judge, jury, and executioner and that is simply not their role. And so without a doubt, my clients were entitled to a fair legal process in this entire situation. I interview a lot of lawyers about like insane cases, but this one really takes the cake. All right, conversion, obviously, 
intentional infliction of emotional distress. And and my understanding is that you can, and this seems like a very important uh, important cause of action here, because what really happened to this child, this young child and her mother, was was brutal. I mean, it was really brutal. I'm sure they haven't recovered yet. And I'm not sure they ever fully recover from this sort of thing. And my understanding is that you can also claim emotional distress damages for violation of constitutional rights. So there's several ways you could do this. Uh, what kind of what kind of evidence would you show, or have you have you not gotten there to 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 just demonstrate the kind of impact this had on on this family? We'll get there as the litigation unfolds. As you mentioned, we are still in the early stages. And so we can expect a lot more from this shocking story as it progresses. You also mentioned earlier, which I think is a really interesting cause of action, your First Amendment claim. Can you just go into that in a little bit more detail? Because that one was really interesting to me. Yeah. So it is our position that these defendants knowingly and intentionally violated the law because of my client's viewpoint that Cedar was a member of their family and Cedar was not to be slaughtered. And so we believe that under any other circumstances, these defendants would not have engaged in the lawless manner that they did. We allege that it was specifically in response to my client's views. Yeah, and this, just like the constitutional, the 1983 claims, This claim has a lot to do with the fact that these were government employees acting under color of state law. And there just seems to be no recognition that 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 puts this additional obligation onto them about how they can behave towards people. I can discriminate against somebody for uh, and punish people for what they've put on social media, but the police can't. That's, you know, that's the government. It, it really, it's a, uh, I imagine this will be a really interesting case legally. It's not just a factually interesting case. As I mentioned earlier, we're at very early days, just a complaint and, and an answer. Did you learn anything from their answer regarding their admitting or denying any of the substantive facts? No, I think what we will really learn will be in the discovery process and particularly in depositions of defendants and witnesses to this case. So what are the next steps? Next steps will be in furtherance of this discovery process, particularly depositions. We have some requests out, some discovery requests out, and we are in the process of scheduling depositions. Now, I I did notice that they claim that the person who was in possession of Cedar when they seized him, and that was not apparently not at the address in the warrant, if I understand that correctly, that they went to another address, and they're now claiming that that person surrendered Cedar voluntarily. Do you have anything to say to that at this juncture? I don't have anything uh, to comment in particular about that, other than to say, I don't think that there are many people who would open the door and see sheriff's deputies at their door and know that those deputies were violating the law and were engaged in an illegal pursuit uh, as part of a sham criminal investigation. Yeah, and I think we can safely say that it would be hard to credit anything that the deputies now say about what was how they presented this issue to whoever they seized this poor little guy from. I've never seen a, an animal law case, and I think it's you know, when the when these things happen and something involving an animal really catches the public attention, it is so important 
to grab it and use it as an opportunity to educate people about what's going on with animals. And are you pleased with the media attention as a whole? To me, it seems like it's been largely terrific. The media attention has been very heartwarming. We have received an outpouring of support from across the country as well as internationally. My client loved her goat and he can't come home. We can't get justice here. But I hope that as this little girl grows up, she takes some comfort to know um, that the world has learned Cedar's story and that yeah. individuals yeah. abuse their power to bully her and that she has recourse. Yeah, that just seems so important. And it really, it really struck me when you said that we can't get justice here. I mean, yeah, they've destroyed the possibility of justice being given in this case, but you can get something a little closer. Uh, and I know this isn't entirely fair, but I mean, you don't know these people any better than I do, but you've been thinking about it a lot. How do you explain this? Like, like seriously, what were they thinking? I mean, even even if they don't care at all about this kid, which apparently they didn't and have no, no heart whatsoever, I, I'm really honestly perplexed as to why, even if they didn't realize it was going to blow up, they would just go to this much trouble to get one tiny little goat. Do you have any answer to this? I mean, even the media, uh, almost every story I read, it, like they're shaking their head. Like what was go what happened here? Is it just, is it really this bullying atmosphere? It's my view that this personal vendetta was fueled by viewpoint discrimination. And this is all exacerbated by the fact that we have a complete asymmetry of power. On the one hand, we have government actors and deputies. And on the other hand, we have a little girl. And so what we see time and time again in the world is those with power forgetting that um, there is accountability for their abuses of that power. Little girls can get lawyers. <laughs> little girls can get lawyers. <laughs> and, and now she has one. I, I know this is ridiculous, but there's almost something hopeful about how extreme their reaction was. It's like, it's like maybe an awareness that they're kind of losing the plot and that they're so mad that anybody cares about this goat on social media, that anybody thinks they're wrong to be doing this, uh, that, that it made them furious. It made, it, they must have been blind with anger. I don't know whether you've seen it, but I've seen some industry media. There was an article on Drovers.com. I follow a lot of industry media. And one thing I noticed about that article, they're really pissed off about this too. They know this is a black eye and they're really mad at these people. But what they're saying is that the fair should have bent the rules just to let this go by. But that's not right, is it? The fair should have followed the rules and, and the law and then, and then everything would have been fine if the fair had followed the law. If the fair had followed the law, Cedar would be with his family and the fair would have been compensated for any monetary damages that they were out due to this purely contractual dispute. Yeah, there's no there was no bending of the rules. They they, they maybe their own rules, but their own rules were not in compliance with the law because they tried to make kids sign contracts that 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 they shouldn't be <laughs> they're they're deceiving these children into thinking that they're legally obligated to do something that they're not to do. Unfortunately, EL was was a little different. 
how does this fit into the whole 4-H uh, worldview? There was that Nicholas Kristof article, which in the middle of which, which was very good, and in the middle of which he says something about 4-H is a terrific organization. Do you think this is evidence that 4-H has a lot of problems that they need to deal with? Look, I think there's a problem anytime a child is exhibiting symptoms of pain and distress. And any program needs to allow for those situations to be handled appropriately and in the best interest of that minor with that minor's health and wellness in mind. Has 4-H as an organization taken any public positions on this at this point? Not to my knowledge. Yeah, well, you probably would know if anybody did. Wow. Well, I am sure that they are in a meeting right now wondering how are we going to how are we going to deal with this? <laughs> I wouldn't be all surprised. So that is another entertaining uh thought uh to try to make up for just this such a sad case. I mean, you know, it's a great case legally and it's such a that's so often is the case such a sad case factually. Uh, I really feel for these people and I just really admire them for sticking up for for Yale sticking up for herself and, and her mother sticking up for her daughter. They really deserve a lot of credit and both of them sticking up for Cedar. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Vanessa. It's really been helpful. I learned, a, I, I, as I said, I, I read news articles, but I didn't really have the story. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate your time and your interest in Cedar's story. Thank you so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We will be back next month with a new show. Thank you so much to Vanessa for taking the time out from what I'm sure is an incredibly crazy, busy schedule right now to help us understand this case. Thanks also to Vicki Beachler as well as to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for their help in producing the podcast. And if you haven't already, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts leaving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, and if you are able, making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org. And thank you so much for tuning in.